We're going to talk about fear today. Let me test your uh, fear trivia this morning, all right? So I'm going to put some phobias up here, and you just call out when you recognize the phobia. We'll start with one of the easier ones, claustrophobia. What's that a fear of, right? Enclosed places. How about arachnophobia? Spiders. Now, the rest of these may not be as familiar, but if you're, you're good with English, and you may be able to guess from the prefixes up here. Hydrophobia. Water, good. Bibliophobia. Well, it's actually books, not the Bible in particular, but that's natural. Uh, botanophobia, botanophobia, plants, dentophobia, dentists, got that one, equinophobia, horses, insectophobia, insects, necrophobia, death or dead things, ornithobia, or we got, what's theophobia up there? I didn't say that yet. That jump up, jump up there, ornithobia is fear of birds, and phobophobia, which is uh, fear of phobias, I suppose. All right, so talking about uh, phobia today, talking about fear really. Now, we're in a sermon series, if you're new to us, on First Peter. I call it Keys of the Kingdom of Heaven because Jesus said to Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So as we work through the topics, and it's an expository sermon series, just going like paragraph to paragraph, through 1 Peter, we're looking at various keys, and today's is, is the fear key. Last week, Peter was talking about the holiness of God, and today he transitions to fear. And so there's a connection between holiness and fear, and that's my first point, the connection between fear and holiness. The passage is 1 Peter 1, latter part of verse 16 and verse 17. Peter, or actually, God says of himself, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then Peter adds, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. So there we go. You should be holy for I am holy. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay here on earth. What is the connection between the holiness of God and fear? Fear, conducting ourselves in fear. That's kind of the foundation that I want to lay this morning. Uh, holiness, the root word means separate. It means different. We're to be different from the world because God is different. But God is even different from us, and he's, the holiness of God is in two different categories. So there is what's called the ontological holiness of God, and then the moral and the ethical holiness of God. All right, so those are, these are theological terms, and I know sometimes we just zone out when we get into philosophical words or theological words. That's why I've got a couple of objects up here to represent these two. The ontological holiness of God the study of ontology is the study of being, being. So to say that God is different from us in an ontological sense or maybe a metaphysical sense means that in his being, God is different from us and he is different from all other creatures. Just the essence of what makes up God, he is holy, he is separate, he is different. For one thing, we have material bodies, right? God does not have a material body, he is pure spirit. But uh, so I've got Stitch up here this morning because he's an alien. So an alien would be a different kind of a being from a human being if there were such things as an alien. All the alien movies have different internal organs and they have different capabilities than we humans do. So Stitch here, I'm, I'm a grandpa. So these are, this is the world that I live in now is the world of children's things. So Stitch is an alien in the movie Lilo, Lilo and Stitch. I'm just using him to represent the ontological holiness of God. So you understand, God is different from us in his being, his essence, than human beings. 
All right, so I said there are two senses, and the other one is the moral, ethical holiness of God. And that has to do with God as a lawgiver and a judge, the lawgiver and judge. Uh, so this is from Paw Patrol up here. This is Chase. He's, a, he's the police dog. So he represents God this morning, this sense of God as a lawgiver and a judge. God is holy in the sense he is separate from sin. He is without sin, totally righteous and pure. Not only is God separate from sin, but he is against all sin and must by his very holy nature punish sin. He must. So these are the two senses in which God is holy, ontological, moral, and ethical. That's what these two represent. Now, how does this all relate to fear? Well, there are, the Bible speaks of two kinds of fear. This is important. If we don't understand this, we're going to miss or be confused about a lot of biblical teaching. These two fears align with these two aspects of the holiness of God. There's a fear that aligns with ontological holiness, and there's a fear that aligns with this uh, moral ethical holiness. For instance, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, we have a verse that incorporates both of these kinds of fear. If you don't understand this, it's going to sound like a contradictory verse. Shortly after receiving the Ten Commandments, we read this, Exodus 20, 20. Moses says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. For God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you. Now, does that not sound a little bit contradictory? Don't be afraid, and yet the fear of God is to remain with you. And elsewhere, the Bible says, perfect love casts out all fear, so we live without fear. And yet, Peter says, fear should characterize our lives. So, which is it? Well, the resolution of that apparent, and it's not a conflict, but the resolution comes in understanding these two different kinds of fear relating to the two different types of the holiness of God. So let's look at those two. Number one, fear as being afraid of God. This has to do with the moral, ethical holiness of God in which he punishes sin. Fear as being afraid of God. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. Isaiah, the prophet, has this great vision of God. And he says, as a result, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, meaning sinful, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When sinners like us become aware of the holiness of God, we begin to understand we have rebelled against him, and therefore we stand in the path of the wrath of a holy and righteous God. The Hebrew writer continues, speaking of those who are not going to rely on the cross of Christ in order to save them, he says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 27, for those folks, there is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. For we know the one who said, I will take revenge. I will pay them back. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. This is the response of fear, being afraid of God as lawgiver and judge. Probably the most famous sermon ever preached in America. 
A sermon that was said to have led to what's called the Great Awakening in the 18th century. It was preached by Jonathan Edwards in Massachusetts, July 8, 1741. By any chance, anyone have any idea what the title of this sermon might be? Yeah, a couple people got it over here. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Jonathan Edwards stunned his church when he preached this. And it had an impact all across the country as it spread out. He mentions judgment like 51 times. Let me just read you a little excerpt from that sermon. Jonathan Edwards said, The God that holds you over the pit of hell is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his king. And yet, it is only his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night that you were permitted to awake again in this world after you slept. And there's no other reason why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There's nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop into hell. Oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and his incense as much against you as against any of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it, ready every moment to burn it asunder. But alas, how many is likely will remember this sermon in hell? And it would be a wonder if some that are now present should not be in hell in a very short time before this year is out. And it would be no wonder if some persons that now sit here in some seats of this meeting house in health and quiet and secure should be there before tomorrow morning. Thank you very much and have a blessed day. <laughs> we had a lady who was visiting last Sunday. It was her first time here. And after the message she said she got me and was shaking out the door back there she said oh I was, I was coming back to church I, I'm so glad you didn't preach a hellfire and brimstone sermon I said just wait till next Sunday okay so what's he talking about there well he's talking about sinners outside of Christ this characterizes people who as the Hebrew writer says because of this all their lives live in fear, in the slavery to the fear of death. Because everybody knows, whether we ad people admit it to themselves or not, we know, we know in our heart of hearts, we intuit it, we sense it, in addition to God's Word telling us this, that God is holy and He must punish sin. And we are under that condemnation outside of Christ. Now, the good news, of course, is uh, for those who are in Christ, we are not characterized by this fear. We do not have this fear. That's the perfect love that casts out all of that type of fear. Fear of being afraid of God, right? And that's why I don't dwell to, I don't do hellfire and brimstone sermons as a rule because 99% of the people who gather here on Sundays are in Christ and are Christians. So other things pertain to us. But there are maybe people who are watching that need to hear that message and have that reaffirmed so that we know that. But that's, that's not the Christian fear. But there is the other kind of fear. So let's return now. Remember, that's moral, ethical, holiness of God. 
Let's return now to the ontological holiness of God. Here's the second kind of fear that we as Christians are supposed to have. And that is fear in the sense of reverence and awe. Right? Fear as reverence and awe for God. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, continuing with Isaiah's vision in heaven, he sees these angelic type beings called seraphim, and they surround the throne of God saying, Holy, 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 holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's that sense of holiness that arouses reverence and awe. This is, I think, what Peter is talking about back to 1 Peter 1.17 when he says, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth right after he talks about the holiness of God. Now, let me just read for you just in quick succession here about 10 or 12 verses that speak of this fear. It could be, I could do 30. There are scores of verses like this, hundreds of verses that talk about this type of fear that we are supposed to have. But I just want these verses to leave an impression. You're not going to write them down necessarily, remember them. I just want to leave the impression, starting with Genesis 22:12, where God is complimenting Abraham. And he says, now I know that you fear God. Deuteronomy 6, 13, you shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him. 1 Samuel 12, 24, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. Psalm 2, 11, worship the Lord with reverence, reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Psalm 33, 18, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Moving to the New Testament, Luke describing the early church. Acts 2.43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. The word there for awe is phobos in the original language, from which we get phobia, elsewhere translated fear. 1 Corinthians 7.1, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness, holiness in the fear of God. Ephesians 5.21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. This is a natural and proper response for us as creatures to our creator, God. Jeremiah 10, 6 says, There is none like you, O Lord, who are great, and great is your name and might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. What is your due? Fear is due God from us in the sense of the awe and the reverence. One theologian has said, this is the primary characteristic of believers in God, that we have this sense of reverence and awe for him. Even in Old Testament times, those Gentiles who wanted to become a part of the faith of the Jews, they were called God-fearers, God-fearers. If we're ever prompted to ask ourselves a philosophical question, who am I? Who am I? the very first thing that should spring into our minds is, I am a creature created by the one uncreated being in the universe, God. And I hold him in a sense of reverence and awe. Now, some have suggested this is the characteristic that may be most lacking in our generation of the church is this fear. I mean, we're all comfortable with buddy Christ and Christ as our friend, what a friend we have in Jesus. And that's all proper. We do have a friend in Jesus. But at the same time, we are to hold God in reverent, awesome fear. Psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him 
known. I just want to, ref- I want to use the heavens this morning in our last few minutes here to refresh, refresh our sense of the awesome bigness and ontological difference of God using the heavens. Now, the Bible says God created the, the heavens and the earth. And just a few, few verses later, it said, God said, let there be light. And there was light. I mean, God said it and it just happens. And out of his mouth came forth light, and he lit up the universe. A light, uh, remember back to your middle school physics. How fast does light travel? What is the speed of light? Yeah, HT got that, and some of the rest of you got that. Light travels at a speed of 186,000 miles per second. Now, astronomers use a measurement to try to measure the size of our universe and space, at least as far out as we can see. They use the measurement of a light year, a light year. So a light year is how far light can travel at 186,000 miles per second in a year, a year's worth of seconds. So how far would that be? I know some of you are crunching the numbers right now in your head. HT, I'll give you a chance to answer that one too. All right. He holds up his hands. The only reason I know is because I researched it for this message. It is 5.88 trillion miles. That's a light year. 5.88 trillion miles. We're getting up there now. We're getting up like a national debt size numbers. 5.88 trillion miles. So in, in measuring a universe, a ruler's not going to do us any good. And even a, a standard mile, that's pretty much useless. And if you're on the metric system, I don't know what's the, what's the equivalent there, but that's even worse. And so we have to have a unit of measurement called a light year that's 5.88 trillion miles long just to begin measuring space, God's space, the heavens that proclaim his glory. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Asked the Holy One. Look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? God brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. We got to use space to right size our God, to get an idea of just how different God is from us. He doesn't have a brain like ours. He doesn't have a mind like ours. He doesn't have limitations like ours. Some have called the cul-de-sac that we live in, in the universe, the Milky Way. So we got the Milky Way. That's our cul-de-sac. And Earth, our planet Earth, is on one of the out, in between two of the outer bands in the Milky Way. The Milky Way is 100,000 light years across. So remember the distance of a light year, Milky Way is 100,000. So if we want to get out of our house in the cul-de-sac and drive over to the house across the cul-de-sac, we have to be able to travel at the speed of light for 100,000 years to get to the other side on our subdivision. Now, Earth I got a picture of Earth here that was taken by Apollo 17 in 1972. It's called the Blue Marble, this picture. This was one of the first pictures of its kind. You know, they finally got far enough out into space to be able to turn around and take a picture like this. So that's our beautiful blue planet that resides in the Milky Way, in the Milky Way galaxy. In 1977, NASA sent out uh, the Voyager, the Voyager, which was uh, its mission was to take pictures of our solar system. And when it had been, it had been traveling for 13 years away from the Earth, and it was 3.7 billion miles away from the Earth, 
NASA sent instructions for the Voyager to turn around and start taking pictures of the Earth. It took a succession of 60 pictures. 60 pictures. Beam those back to NASA. It took months for those pictures to get back. They were combined into a composite image that looks like this. Now, this is one of the most famous pictures out of space ever. And I don't put the next picture up yet, Justin, because planet Earth is in that picture. Do you see it? I'll let you look at it for a little bit. I can see it, but I'm standing up here pretty close, and I know where to look. All right, Earth is in that picture right there. So this is a beam from the sun that reflected off of Voyager and just happened to be caught in the picture with Earth in the light, reflecting the sunlight. It's a famous picture called the pale blue what? Dot. Famous picture called the pale blue dot. If you would show the third one, and this blows it up so it's even more clear. There's our Earth. From billions of miles out, one astronomer said, remarked, everyone who has ever lived has lived out their life on this moat, this speck of dust floating in a sunbeam. You know what that kind of gives you a sense of? Not only the vastness of space and the hugeness of the glory of God, but the smallness of man. We tend to think about our lives, everything revolves around me. That's a result of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. Sin has corrupted our sense of the importance of ourselves. Life does not revolve around us. I mean, we live, we're here, and then we're gone. Everybody who's ever, ever lived. Neil Armstrong, when he was on his way back from the moon, said, I remember on the way home it struck me that tiny pea, pretty and blue, was the earth. I put my thumb out and shut one eye, and my thumb blotted out the earth. But I didn't feel like a giant. I felt very, very small. The psalmist had it right when he said, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The Fermi paradox, F-E-R-M-I, the Fermi paradox was proposed by an astronomer named Enrico Fermi in, 19, in the 1950s. He asked this question. He said, we know the universe is billions of years old. There are plenty of uh, solar systems out there, even galaxies, that are older than ours. And if Earth is typical and life spontaneously generated and then evolved into intelligent beings here on Earth, it must have happened in many other places out in the universe. There are other suns with habitable planets. Many of them are older than our sun, and they're older than Earth. And he asked the question, all that being the, ca all that being the case, interstellar travel would have developed in these other civil civil civilizations. We should have been visited many, many times by aliens from other planets. He said, however, there's no convincing evidence that this has happened. Please don't send me your fuzzy YouTube videos with the flying saucers. He says, there's no convincing evidence that this has happened. He basically says, where is everybody? Where is everybody else? And part of the point is, if, if that universe out there, and, and we haven't even gone beyond the Milky Way. We could go way, way out beyond that. It's much bigger than that. We, we still don't know how big the heavens are. If space in the universe is primarily a ha just a habitat 
for human beings on earth, it's way too big. There's a lot of wasted space. It's oversized. But if the heavens are not primarily just a habitat for human beings on earth, but rather are a showcase, a showcase displaying the glory of God, letting us know just how big and different he is, then it's just the right size. Might make us feel small, might make us feel insignificant, but it's a significant insignificance. Because I want to show you one more picture. And the Bible says that through Christ, everything that was created was created. And there's our creator. There's our creator. As big and powerful as he is. Not only can he name every single star in the sky. And in our galaxy, if we started naming the stars right now, in the Milky Way, the scientists tell us if we named one star per second, it would take us 2,500 years to name all those stars. He knows the name of every star, but he also knows the name of every person in this room, every person in this city, in the state of Florida, in the United States, on this earth. He knows every one of our names. And he came to save us from our sins. The, the, Paul writes it this way in Philippians 2.5. Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The psalmist says in Psalm 103.8, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's love his loving kindness toward those who fear him. Long before you ever decided what you were going to do with God in your life, long before God decided what he was going to do with you and what he was going to do with me, he was going to save us by grace through faith. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven this morning, we right-size you in our minds. May it never be said of us in this room that we are not God-fearers, we reverence you and hold you in the awe that you deserve as the great creator and then as equally important to us as our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.